0: Hi, I'm Downer, And I'm Richard Jones, and you're listening to The Cinematography Podcast.
1: The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to The Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a programme about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts... Ben Rock, and Ilya Friedman.
2: Hey, Ben. Hey, Ilya. How's it going? It's going. It's pandemic going. It's going. It's going. It's quarantastic,
3: is what I've been saying lately.
2: (laughs) You know what is a great way to spend quarantine? Watching documentaries, all kinds of documentaries. Documentaries is a great thing to watch during a pandemic. I can tell you from personal experience. I've actually watched quite a few myself, and it's funny you would mention that, because you know who today's guest is. I I don't know. Who
3: is today's guest? Today's guest, it's actually two people. It is the director and DP of an amazing discovery nature documentary called Serengeti. And, you know, it's a little bit out of the ordinary for us to do people who specialize in nature documentaries. So it's uh, the director's name is John Downer. The DP's name is Richard Jones. And these guys, this is what they do, man. They make nature documentaries and they know everything about it. And it's a fascinating interview, I think, because we talk a lot about how they are pushing technology to do stuff that no one's ever done before to get You know, these Michael Bay esque sequences out of a nature documentary about, you know, monkeys and lions and elephants and stuff like they're getting shots that Marlon Perkins could have only dreamed of in the (laughs) 1970s mutual of Omaha's wild kingdom. (laughs) And also to that end, why don't you tell us about our George Floyd
2: close focus segment? Oof. Okay. Well, our close focus today, there's a really, really good article in The Hollywood Reporter about controversial documentaries being cut from streaming platforms. And we know this uh, ourselves because we did a really incredible interview with the filmmakers behind, or at least a filmmaker behind uh, The Dissident, uh, Jake Swantko. One
3: of the documentaries
2: mentioned in this article. Exactly. And we have been holding off on that interview because uh, there's no distribution deal yet. We haven't. And that's, that's the documentary about Jamal Khashoggi, right? That's exactly what it is. And and about, well, the murder murder of Jamal and essentially Saudi Arabia and a whole lot of a whole lot of stuff, including actually one of the streaming platform giant Mm. uh, moguls is, of course, Jeff Bezos from Amazon. And he actually has sort of a cameo in this documentary. And I'm actually really surprised that that they haven't put this documentary out. But now reading this article, it's interesting that seems to me that a lot of the streaming services are shying away from some of these stories that are very controversial. I mean, there, there was a big deal made about a Michael Moore documentary recently called Planet of the Humans, which yeah. was pulled from YouTube. From YouTube. And
3: I mean, like pull, for Michael Moore, Oscar winning documentarian to have a film pulled from YouTube. I mean, like, you seems know, it's weird. Yeah. YouTube is kind of a cesspool of QAnon conspiracy videos, <laughs> but an actual documentary made by an Oscar winning
2: documentarian gets pulled. That's that seems super fishy to me. Does seem very fishy. And he's really made a big deal about it. He's making a lot of hay, but it's not just him. Yeah. There was uh, Alex Gibney. Uh, you know, he he won he won an Oscar as well, and he made yeah. a, a documentary called Citizen K, and that's all about Putin. And that's doesn't seem to have a distribution deal at the moment right now either. And or actually, they did. I mean, Amazon seemed to have a deal for him. Then they claimed they didn't have a deal, even though Amazon paid for all of the travel costs for the Venice premiere of the Ooh. movie. So it's like. It's really it's really weird and and the Hollywood reporter does a good job of kind of kind of breaking this down there there's other ones as, as well too uh, I guess there is a documentary called hoaxed and I guess there is a contract between the CIA and Amazon worth like 600 million dollars and the quote that's actually used in this uh, this piece here says that Bezos does not want the public to be reminded of this CIA contract so who knows who knows what I mean we're kind of delving down into conspiracy Conspiracy land here, but there's a bunch of well-known documentarians making high-quality stuff that seems to not be getting out there now. Well, I
3: think that, like, this stuff tends to eventually get out. Like, there's a documentary that I think was a short end of mine many months ago called American Dharma by Errol Morris, one of my favorite filmmakers alive. And it's basically just an interview that he conducts with Steve Bannon. And it is a super disturbing movie and I remember reading an article, you know, maybe a year, year and a half ago about how they were having a really hard time finding a home for it. I eventually saw it on Canopy. Um, Mm. I don't uh, somebody found somebody distributed it. and I think that these films will find a home and if there is a silver lining to them being you know sort of shuffled off of these digital platforms it's that obviously in this article written by Tatiana Siegel it's getting them a little bit of attention which hopefully will you know direct people towards the documentary
2: films uh, well we're gonna have a link to the this article in our show notes and we also will try to do the best to Uh, maybe have links to any of these other documentaries for stuff that they might have. I I will say that before distribution, though, quite often it's hard to find information about movies, especially documentaries. They don't necessarily have websites. But we will do a little research and anything that we can find to add to this conversation to for people who might want to seek it out or maybe uh, a smaller platform or a smaller player gets involved in some way we'll try to make it so that it's easier to see some of these uh, pieces work we want to try to make it easy for people to try to see stuff that might otherwise be missed so um so yeah we'll we'll do a little work and we'll we'll include it, include them in the show notes
3: excellent My, if i had to bet i'd say all of these are going to be on canopy in the next six months <laughs> i love canopy for this yeah.
2: Can, canopy so far uh, not not political. It doesn't seem like they seem like they uh, they're not trying to expand their expand their reach. Yeah, into, yeah, I
3: mean it, I, they're pretty amazing. Yeah. So uh, let's go ahead and get into that interview with John Downer and Richard Jones.
1: The Cinematography Podcast Interview.
3: We are here with John Downer and Richard Jones, the director and DP of Serengeti, a nature documentary currently on the Discovery Channel. Please check it out. Thank you guys so much for coming on. We're uh, we're we're talking over uh, on, on several continents. It's awesome. Firstly, I, I always ask uh, uh, cinematographers a question about like how we turn images or how we turn words in a script into images. But I'd like to ask uh, you both, uh, maybe starting with John. Uh, how, do you, how do we even conceptualize a, a, a documentary about animals? You know, your, your, your uh, documentary is so cinematic. Uh, where, where does it start? What's the, the how, where do the ideas come from to, to even start making a show like this?
4: Well, it was, it's quite complicated because we did it differently than I think anyone's done before. We did have a script to begin with. We had a shooting plan because we knew what the animals are likely to do. But what we didn't want to do is show what the animals are likely to do. So mm. it had to be very, very fluid, because most of the big moments of drama came from the anim- when the animals did something that was so extraordinary, we couldn't believe our eyes. So we would be continually revising the scripting, you know, to take account of nature, really, which is nature's, you know, full of the unexpected, and the animals never do quite what you think they're going to do they like yes, they like people you know they're complicated and they have emotions which is what we wanted to show they they make different decisions and they don 't do the decisions that you expect no matter how long you've been with them and I think Richard would support me on that who's been out in the, the field longer than you know I have uh, in Africa and um, you know, they never do what you expect, so we wanted to have a fluid script that we could at least structure into kind of a more dramatic form, mm-hmm. but the main events that took place, they were then backwoven into that story, you know, to, to, so it became a genuine expression of the animals that live in the African bush.
3: Well, and for Richard, when you're going to make something like this and you get kind of the script, and I would love to see the kind of script, like how different a script is for something like this. Anyway, how do you go about planning a shoot where obviously, well, I mean, I don't know what kind of gear you guys had, but it seemed pretty clear to me that you've got drones. You've you've got like every kind of camera out there. You've got wide lenses. You've got long lenses. You're doing stuff that I'm not used to seeing in, in this kind of show.
0: Well, there's obviously lots of pre-planning that goes into it. And um, I think with this show, we wanted to lo- use a lot of um, movement and stuff, which is, um, again, it's more difficult in wildlife because you can't lay down tracks because you don't know that the lion's going to walk you know, along <laughs> that direction. So Take five. Yeah. So we had to use very, um, you know, sort of gimbals and things like that in various different forms. And... We did quite a lot of testing, certainly on our first shoot. We tried to have lots of toys and we we would work with them and see which ones would work best for us, how quick they were to deploy and, and things like that. But the sort of the main camera, I suppose, was like a normal cinema camera with being wildlife long lens. But then we were also using remote cameras, which um, we could get much closer to the animals, hence the wide angle, low down stuff, which we were also trying to do. So we were trying to get ourselves on the level with the animals. So usually you're filming wildlife from a car, so you're sort of waist high, chest height, or even shooting from the roof because you can see further. But we wanted to get down, so it meant trying to adapt cameras that we could then control from as low down and as close to the ground as possible, which um, brought its own challenges as well. You know, you get the cameras stuck in grass and all sorts of things, (laughs) eaten by lions.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I just kept wondering about that, like, you know, because obviously those cameras are making sounds or they're crunching on grass, even if they're relatively quiet. The wildlife not acknowledging the camera especially, except... There were plenty of shots where the wildlife would run right at the camera, which was insane. But how did you go about trying to not disturb them too much with the gear? Or did you just have to roll and roll and roll and wait till they got bored with it?
4: I think it was a matter of habituation, you know, which we're very much used to doing. So if you get anything running at a camera, it's probably the first time it sees it. You know, Mm. after that, you know, the whole point is that they very quickly relax.
3: I'm really curious about like what kind of background leads you to this very specialized kind of filmmaking for both of you. You know, we talked to obviously a lot of people who went to film school or whatever, what are your backgrounds and how did you find this very specific kind of film that you wanted to make?
4: I mean, I was, um, I was always interested in, well, I was interested in zoology. I studied at a university, but I was also really interested in film and photography. So the two kind of went hand in hand and I very quickly realized that that's what I wanted to do. I never thought it was going to, ever going to be possible when I left university, but that's what I wanted to do. And I got a job at the BBC and very quickly moved into the BBC Natural History and suddenly found I, my dream was fulfilled and I was making wildlife films. But I always wanted, you know, much as I loved the existing wildlife films and they inspired me, I was much more interested in sort of getting into their world, the animals that we were studying and know what it's like to be those animals. So I suppose my whole um, professional life has been chasing that desire to, to get into the animal world and, and film things from their perspective. And uh, as they see them, and get closer to them emotionally as well, because they're very emotional animals, which you suddenly realize when you've been filming them for a while, they're not predictable. They do things, you know, from the heart. And so you feel, you know, I wanted in the, the style of the cinematography to reflect that closeness that I was seeing within them. So that set me on this train of how could we get closer? How can we get closer? And I think that Serengeti was the first time I felt that all the camera technology, everything I had dreamed of, suddenly became available. As Richard said, you know, we spent um, a month testing out all this gear trying to get and refine the look that we were trying to to capture that gets to the essence of those, those animals lives so for me it was uh, it's a long path but it was always with this in mind and you know with serengeti it was just so wonderful i had a chance to to actually realize that uh, how about you richard
0: um, I, I grew up in kenya in africa so The love of animals, I suppose, was there from from very early on, having going on safari and things like that. Um, Oh, wow. But I actually started off in the film industry in South Africa, um, and I was actually a grip. So, you know, I was using cranes and dollies and things like that. And um, I sort of got a bit disillusioned towards the end and decided, no, I want to go and do something more meaningful. And I decided to go and work for a guy who was making wildlife films in Botswana. And from there, you know, I was his assistant for quite a long time and eventually it's like you know what why don't I look through your camera and you go and have a cup of tea and the rest over there and let me do this (laughs) Uh, eventually it was sort of like okay Richard you do the filming I'll go off and do something else Um, and I I got into (laughs) it that way so it was I actually didn't go to film school or anything like that I just dived straight in there But I think with wildlife filming, a lot of it is you need to sort of be a naturalist. So you need to sort of have a good connection with the animals and know what they're going to do, because that's a big help. If you you can sort of interpret the animal behavior, you can then put yourself in the right position to capture on film, because as you can imagine, you can't tell a lion, sorry, just go back and do that again. Exactly. (laughs) You have to be in the right position to film it in the first place. And obviously, if you know the animals well, that gives a big help.
3: I'd, I'd love to ask you both too like what are the misconceptions of wildlife documentaries that that you hear people honestly pedestrian people like myself proclaim like what are the things uh, disabuse me of like some of the cliche things that people think about what you guys do.
4: Such as does it get boring is that one of them <laughs> that's what I often get asked how can you sit there all that time you know waiting for an animal to do something and we do you know we may yeah. sit for several days before you get anything you think you've got worthwhile. But the weird thing is, it's well, you're in the most magical place. Yeah. And there's always something happening. And you're planning all the time. You're trying to to outwit the the animals and, and also anticipate what they're gonna do, as Richard said. And Richard is a master of this, you know, so you may be sitting with lions. You've got to know when they're gonna hunt because they will take you by surprise. And that's actually not looking at them. It's looking what's around them and what's coming towards you. So, so you're never bored. You know, you're always thinking, how can, or what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And suddenly, you know, they're 14 hour days quite often, and you know, up before sunrise, you know, back when it's dark, and that day just goes by. And the next one does and the next one does and then something extraordinary happens and it's like those days of nothing didn't exist i think that's why we keep going
0: another misconception is it must be really dangerous filming wild animals and um well it is but it is not really because uh, obviously we're usually in a car um so therefore you know we're, we're not really putting ourselves in danger because we are aware that they are dangerous animals so we Take steps to prevent them jumping in the car or whatever. But you know, there, there, there are sometimes um, situations where it can get a little bit scary and things can, you know, do things that you're not expecting. Um, but uh, yeah, that another one of those things. It's not that dangerous. <laughs> well, I don't think There's it is. is
4: it's more dangerous than when you get out of the car. So you have to be careful. We do put remotes down. So that mm-hmm. needs. To be very cautious, but a lot of the the, the te- tech has been designed to um, let the animals be at the, the um, you know be at the sharp end, oh, the, they're the sharp end. You, know, <laughs> try and not, you try and not be there, um, yeah. but you know inevitably you know there are close shades that you do have, in the, even though you take every precaution because you can't predict everything. You know, yeah.
0: uh, most most times, 99% of the time, the animal's more frightened of you anyway, so it usually will leave you alone
3: <laughs> most but most times but sometimes not
4: <laughs> run, run at a lion and the lion is most likely to run away you know that's kind of generally the thing you
0: know it only normal. happened once it only happened once though. you can only run, run at a lion once and then it goes hang on a minute that wasn't so scary <laughs> <laughs>
3: So I don't want to ask the question of does it get boring, but I, I am fascinated with your episodes feel almost like action movies and character pieces. Like they they flow. They have a story. Uh, the stories have beginnings, middle and ends. There's, uh, you know, amazing lighting. There's amazing cinematography and camera work and all 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 the things that you would expect really in like a you know, a a friggin' Michael Bay movie or something, and you're doing it with animals. How long does it take to get the kind of footage that you're talking about? How many, for for every minute of footage, how many hours are we talking about?
4: I think we we recorded three hours. We had 3,000 hours of footage. Mm
3: -hmm. for, uh, For the whole series? For the whole series,
4: yeah. That's a lot of editing. That's a lot of keeping track of stuff because sometimes it's just waiting for that moment to happen. And you know the lighting. Well, you know, Richard's a master at getting the right light. You know, and capturing that dawn, big orb of the sun rising above the water in a way that
3: even like in the middle of the animal action, I would notice that a lot of times the sun would be like in the exact spot you would you would put it if you were you know making you know an action movie or something. Like everything's perfectly backlit exactly, but but obviously you you're just using natural light. Well, that's where
4: Richard's. Uh, um, the other team's amazing you know ability to predict what's going to happen so you move the car for the lighting mm-hmm. then move the animal and so uh, that's a, that's part of the art of cinematography in, in wildlife is think about the lighting which that is just instinctive of course for great cinematographers so can you talk about that
3: a little bit richard about like how, how you plan that stuff
0: uh, well, I suppose it's that, you know, the thought is in your head the whole time is to put something beautiful onto a piece of celluloid, well, a piece of digital at the moment.
4: Yeah. Um,
0: so, you know, you're always looking at it, at a scene uh, cinematographically. Um, so you're looking at the lighting and thinking, well, if I shoot from here, it's packed, it'll look nicer. You know, the sun's over there. And you're always trying to work to that advantage. Then again, you have to also be aware that you can't tell the animal where to go. So you have to position yourself. And it's a a, a juggling act. Um, And and I suppose the challenge and I suppose that's one of the things about going out every morning is like, okay, let's see how great we can make it today with, with the options that we get given. You know it's not storyboarded absolutely exactly so we're sort of making up some of those stories as we're going along and you know some of the stories you know you we might have to go back and do pick up shots at a different time and there you know you have to then think back to when you first shot it and think okay I was here and I shot it like this and everything, um, so that it hopefully when the editors put it together, it looks as it's, you know, shot as a sequence.
4: I mean, fortunately, we've got, you know, we generally have two vehicles at least, but each of the vehicles has a whole array of cameras as well. So they're getting different angles. So, you know, therefore, you're very rarely lost for all the action. You, there may be some things you need to, need to get, but some things are covered totally on, on the, you know, the, the low level camera, the camera, tracking camera on the vehicle, and maybe just another handheld camera that's getting a shot that no one else can reach because the section suddenly gone round the back. So there's there's a lot of choices, you know, in terms of what we use. And obviously we're trying to tell the story as as best it can be, but we're also looking to make it beautiful, you know, and the, the images everyone's striving to get are beauty, you know, okay. to capture that. So you know, everyone's working at their very best within what nature has to offer. And, and that's, I think, the big difference. But when you can't beat it, when nature's uh, doing the lighting for you, you know, that's impossible to emulate, you know, when you get that right. So, and And Africa does offer a lot. Yeah,
3: like I just kept thinking about that while I was watching it. I just kept seeing these like perfectly backlit animals doing stuff again, like you couldn't have set it up better in a studio. And, you know, if you were making a movie, you can be like, ah, just send that condor up and turn the 18K 45 degrees and boom. But for you guys, it's like, oh, the lion's running that way. So now you have to circle half a mile, a mile to get that shot. And uh, it's interesting that you have two vehicles to do it, but it still sounds like an enormous challenge, even even if you are creating a lot of footage, just to get to get to the story that you're trying to get Um, We don't we don't get into super in depth tech talk on here generally, although we we definitely skate around it. But I'm really interested in how the camera technology, which you know probably most of it is made for people who are making movies like narrative films. How has the the evolution of technology changed your workflow? Like obviously you're using it in ways that you know the people who created these cameras probably couldn't have dreamed of. But you know sort of like what you're talking about being able to get the the video while you're you know while Richard's in the field or whatever, like what are some of the technological tools that you've that have become invaluable to you over the last few years?
4: I think the biggest one is the stabilization of cameras. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and and the fact that generally everything's getting smaller. So and cheaper, you know, because a lot of what we use, I mean, we've got some pretty expensive kit. They're unbelievably expensive. <laughs> but we also have some not so expensive kit still being able to shoot 4K or or even more. So it's a balance between those different cameras. So the fact you can have, you know, one time, you'd have one camera. That's what wildlife camera meant.
3: I know. Yeah. I, th- I think about like Marlon Perkins and, uh, you know, Mutual of Omaha's uh, Wild Kingdom when I was a kid, which I'm sure they shot on film.
4: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I started on film. We both started on film, you know, and, and the, the way that has developed and changed everything. You, because before, you know, you're, you so many times on film where, you know, 10 minute the 10 minute roll runs out you know, yeah. and just at the point, everything starts to happen. <laughs> and, and, you know, if you haven't got another mag loaded, you know, and it's very easy to run out of mags if a lot's happening, 10 minutes only to film. there's hands in the back, you know, with the cameraman and you're sitting there just watching everything unfold before you. And this is exactly what you came to film, but you can't pick up a camera because there's no camera to pick up. You know, so I think that's the big thing now that as I say we've got some pretty sophisticated kit, a lot of cameras. There's always cameras on hand, you know, to to act as a supplement to the main the main cameras. And so we're avoiding missing those moments. So I think the other big thing, you know, what one of one of our you know huge stabilized camera systems that go on a vehicle which can shoot on a thousand mil lens and and be traveling at forty miles an hour. So you know some of these sweeping shots that kind of just kind of, you develop into it and you get closer and closer and closer to the action. You mm-hmm. know that literally the driver driving full foot, foot on the pedal, and, uh, and Richard trying to keep the whole thing in frame. But you don't you don't hear the panic that's going on behind. But before that would have been nothing. You know you wouldn't have got a shot.
2: Yeah. You know, and
4: by the time you would have got there, the action you have just seen will be over because things never last long. You know, they are moments of eruption. Yeah. So that, and that's, you know, the digital technology. It's also the stabilization technology and also the ability to you know, start filming the moment you see it or even, you know, press the, um, press the button after you've seen it. As long as you're on it, the camera can record. So you know, back in time it seems. So yeah,
3: yeah. The, the, the some of those cameras have like a thirty-second buffer or whatever. Yeah.
4: So I mean, it's just extraordinary. So I mean, I've been you know been very fortunate that you know throughout my professional life, things have just got better and better and better. Yeah. And easier and easier, which means you can push the boundaries more and more in terms of what you're doing.
3: Um, is there a temptation? I mean, like the sort of the evil opposite of film, where like you know you, we only have ten minutes. Let's save the roll, whatever. Is there a temptation to just never stop rolling and create you know more footage than an army of editors could sift through to get to the good stuff? Anyway,
0: uh, yes, there is because of the fact that you could, you've always got that voice in you. So so why weren't you recording? It's like well <laughs> I was I was recording for the last hour and I actually just had to change the SD card, so that was where. um yeah i mean the pre-record is a great help for that because you really can wait for something to happen before you press go but again you know you've probably got a maximum of of 30 seconds i must admit when i'm filming i probably don't go that much i'd say with digital i'm definitely shooting a lot more because Mm -hmm. it's cheaper basically you can just you know it's just on a stored on a hard drive but it does mean that the poor editors and the loggers have, have just got miles and miles of stuff to go through. I don't know, I think John will back me up and say, it's probably worth it because you, you know, there's less chance of missing anything and, and you know, wondering how are you are gonna join those two sequences together if you miss the vital bit of the line standing up. Sometimes you just have to let it go and just record it.
4: And sometimes you don't know when you're filming it, how important one element of the shot might be.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, I have a question too about like how you two constructed sequences so you know like anytime there's a big kill or there's a fight or there's a whatever uh, there's an action sequence among the animals it feels like Suddenly we're in that kind of suddenly drone going around and, you know, cross cutting shots that are sliding in opposite directions and and we're also getting in tighter. So if you're out there, do you plan like, okay? because I don't know anything about, say, lions, for instance. I don't know lion behavior. Do you know an hour out like, okay, the big sequence is coming up. Let's get, you know, these six cameras in the field. Like, how do you go about constructing those?
4: I think you try and get what out out what you can. So you can get your if you can get your remotes out with them. You've mm-hmm. got you know you're going to get some good camera coverage. That's not always possible. You may be like just left with one camera, but then generally you're left with one camera who's picking up the main action. Then the, the other ones can be put out or be used, or you bring yeah. in another vehicle to get another angle or whatever. The most extraordinary for for me was in the second program of the series, and there was a point where this male lion had been following this. This, these two females and uh, one of them became the character Carly, and we thought it, it was getting very nasty and she had these little cubs so did her sister and we thought that male was going to kill them but we got the cameras in there and it, we had the cameras in there we didn't know what was going to happen and then this male we could see it coming and coming and coming so that we covered all that on the on the long lens cameras the stabilised cameras and then what actually happened happened right in front of all our cameras. You know, they were all in the perfect position, and that's when he came in. And instead of attacking the cubs, he made friends with the female. The females flirted with him. They just mm-hmm. kind of managed to make him calm him down <laughs> impressive. and aggressive. Uh, and suddenly, he fell in love with the, ca- the females and the cubs and her cubs, which we thought they were going to kill. And that was a that was a terrifying moment. It's one of those moments when you think, "I've got to keep filming. I don't want to. Fi- I don't want to film this. It's going to be horrendous." You know? Yeah, and yeah. What happened then was magical. But you know, you can you can get lucky, and we got lucky a lot of times. with getting those cameras in the right place because we were expecting something to happen. We didn't know what, and once they're in there, they can record and record and record. You know, and we're getting live views of those. So uh, rather than you know plan it in terms of oh, we go to the event, we think this is going to happen now, let's put our camera there or put our camera there or what should we do? It's just, you know, it's just automatic. You just are thinking about coverage Mm
1: -hmm. and
4: you're thinking about light. You're thinking about, you know, what happens if, you know, the elephant walks over this and smashes it, you know, or whatever. There's so many
3: things you balance. Seems like but an the, occupational hazard. Yeah.
4: Yeah, well, it is. It is. There are a lot of occupational hazards. Unfortunately, mainly it's the ca- cameras that take the brunt of it. Yeah, but you're, you're continually trying to get as much coverage out there. And to, to give the... I always wanted it to, to look like a feature film. I always wanted to be told as the drama I wanted those reaction shots, I wanted the the POVs, you know, the stuff that is kind of the normal language of film but is very yeah. used, and I, I, wanted, I wanted to get that and I wanted to get as much as possible live when the event was happening. And, um, and so all the testing that we did, and as Richard said, we have a month where we're just testing kit, was what, let's not have loads of things getting the same kind of shots, make sure we've got those are things getting different shots. Yeah. So they're giving different perspectives and different viewpoints, and that you have the choices that you ha- have when you have time. You know, uh, for a, for a human drama, so it's actually set up the cameras. You know, we need to get the, that kind of coverage, and then we would apply variations on to that onto every scene, depending on you know how much time we might have to bear, or are we, or are we just rolling in when it. is all kicking off and then you that's a matter of scrambling and trying to get more coverage as it develops
3: that's interesting so you know and, and at the beginning of this you were talking about how you kind of come in with a script now obviously i'm assuming it's not like in screenplay format like what i you know like a movie script would be how detailed of an outline do you come in with especially knowing that you're gonna have to follow the lead of animals that are undirectable basically
4: well, the, the, the first one is uh, there are certain things that animals do, which is very predictable. And when you've been with them a lot, you know how the seasons impact on what they do. You know how they change their patterns of behavior with the seasons. Uh, and so, and you know where the big peaks are. You know, you know that, you know, the wildebeest migration and crossing the river is going to be pretty epic. You know that a fire is going to ch- totally devastate and change the landscape when they come through regularly but you know that after the fire there's a rebirth and it's magical so that is you know that that's got to be part of the the emotion of the film because yeah, you know where fire goes through everything looks dead you know and it's a very traumatic what seems to be a very traumatic time but then from from that you know rebirth comes and so that became the theme of the last program which was all about rebirth when the green came and it was a good time be back and you know, and what follows what is apparent disaster, you know, uh, can be good. And so those kind of big beats on the storylining were built into the, into the story.
1: And obviously you had an idea of what animals you were interested in following too. It's Because it, you had specific, you know, set, you had the baboons and you had the lions and you had, so did you already have that in mind when you were coming to it?
4: Oh, absolutely! Yeah, you know, it had to be the charismatic animals. You know, they're all, they're all charismatic. That's the beauty of Africa. But but we had to we had to have some of the key characters. People would expect the lions, the elephants, the cheetahs. What I was less confident about was the baboons. But we thought we needed to have some kind of monkey, and in a way that then became you know because it was it's been so rarely filmed because people aren't thought to be that interested in them and the behavior isn't so well known. You know, we put the time in the baboons and then they suddenly became the stars of the show. Mm -hmm. You know, that was never, that was never planned because that story, you know, and the fact that the female got taken by the python and there was an orphan and I was adopted and all these, these are incredible things that you can't really write into a, you know, into a plan there's nothing better than the animals writing the story. And that's what I've tried to make you know, happen throughout, that be guided by what they're telling us, be guided by what they do and what their behavior is, rather than, oh, they're not doing what I wanted it to do, well, but almost certainly doing something far more interesting. You know, I like to think that those animals are writing the story as close as they can, because it's what they present to us when we're there. And I think that kind of gives it a, a veracity and some integrity you know it's a drama but it's it's based on reality
1: well and with serengeti specifically it's like you really had it telling a narrative story with characters with names with instead of just revealing you know the the baboons are you know instead of doing like your typical narrative documentary style
0: explaining their behavior kind of thing so can you talk a little bit about that approach
1: well,
4: yeah, yeah, because I didn't want it to be a naturalist you know, a normal naturalist show, and it, it, it for me, that feels great that they are. It's it, there's more than one way to tell a story, and the style of it. I didn't want it to sound like anything else, and I wanted it to be minimal. I mean, in terms of the scripting, we just wanted to guide the audience where they needed to be guided, but not tell them what they're seeing. So that was kind of the guide there. But, you know, what I wanted to do do is reflect the place and in a way that hadn't been done before. But more importantly, I spent, as I keep saying, a very long time, you know, filming animals, and I've got more and more into that, into their lives. And and you realize that we're so close, you know, our our emotions are the same, you know, the, the way you know, we respond to things, you just see human parallels in anything. You know, a mother, a boo, with a baby, I mean, she loves that baby, you know, like it's Anyone mother loves a baby. He's saying same with every, every character that we, um, we featured. You know, that is, is just inherent in the, the fact that they are animals and we are animals. We share so many emotions. But I think it's very easy to take that distant view and just say, oh, well, they're, they're animals over there. We'll film them from a distance, and then we'll you know, put an educational narration on the top. I wanted to, people to understand the similarities between us and the other animals on the planet, because that's part of what we were, and this is Simon's, was Simon Fuller was uh, so keen when you know, we discussed doing this idea together. He was absolutely on that wavelength. That's where he came from and that 's where I was in terms of my professional you know, journey, that we can 't just talk of them in this kind of way that you don 't really feel any emotional connection. The most important thing is to recognize that we are emotionally you know that though we have similar emotions, we are connected to those animals and you we know, that 're that all part of this one world and um, and that was where we started the whole process. For Simon came from it from a you know from an outsider just loving Africa, and then then hearing this, going on safari and hearing the stories of these animals' lives and thinking that's just so human. I'm doing it because I've just been immersed in it, and all the time you're just you're just astonished by what they do, um, and you see that that connection that we have. You know, so that was really the driving force there. It was uh, it was a uh, a goal to, to make those animals relevant to us. And you do that by that emotional connection. So treat them as we would treat You know, humans in a drama, but not anthropomorphize them in making them not what they are. They're still real animals, but you understand the, you know, what drives them and it's the same feelings that underpin our own behavior.
3: Richard, can you talk a little bit, you know, to, to that point, how you go about capturing the animal behavior? I know we've talked a little bit about this without without drawing attention to yourself, but also, like, if, if you were trying to pass your craft along to somebody else, what are the things you need to know to look at with animal behavior um, when you're filming them to, you know, to sort of know firstly, just how to get the cool shots that you want to get to tell the story, but also to kind of capture the, the character of the animal, because again, we're We're always talking to people who shoot humans. You know, how do you capture the character of an animal?
0: One of the big things is you have to know the animal. So you have to have spent a lot of time with them, be able to interpret their behavior. And obviously the the more you know what they're doing, the more you can get inside their heads and go, okay, I, I think I know what they're going to be doing now. So I'm going to capture it like this or I'm going to put myself here. Also, I mean, one of the other things is, you obviously have to be very aware of how you might be influencing the animals so that it changes its behavior in, in a way that it's not being completely natural because maybe you're too close or something. So, again, we're very aware of noticing any slight difference in, in what they're doing that might reflect the fact that they're not happy with us there, in which case mm-hmm. you then move away a little bit. And also, by spending time with them as well, I think they the animals – Sort of start relating to you a little bit, and obviously they start accepting you. And the more they that they accept you, the less they're gonna act as though that you're a strange thing in their environment. So mm. you know, once they get used to you being there, and and okay, this car it arrives every morning and it hangs around with us all day, and um you know, but it it, it doesn't come and annoy us. It, it sits over there for a little bit, and then it goes and drives over there, and then it may sit under a shade of a tree for a bit, and. <laughs> you know, we're, we're not in, in, you know, putting ourselves in their life completely because we're not, you know, we're hanging back a bit, but we also have to then get in to their lives as well. So there's the remote cameras, which we can then take in closer to them. And,
1: you know, it's
0: quite difficult to put a camera right next to a lion. You know, it's a big dangerous thing. If you get out of the car too, it'll run away from you or it'll jump on you and eat you. So
4: mm-hmm.
0: I think with, Knowing the animals and then also just spending time with them and letting them accept you on their terms rather than you pushing them and saying, you know, I'm going to be sitting here all day and you just have to get used to it. You know, that's not going to work.
3: That's interesting. I, I also I have one like super persnickety question that I'm just really curious about because there was a shot that I've never seen a shot like this in any show like this. And it was a, a super close up shot. And you, you went to it a few times of uh, birds in flight, like tight on their face, filling the frame on the birds when they were up in the air flying. And I I, I was dying to know how you pulled that off.
4: Well, that's the only thing, the only thing we would leave people wondering because we get asked that all the time. And oh
3: man, ah, I'm sorry to ask a common yeah, question. Yeah, how ah, how basic.
4: <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's a uh, that's uh, for people to be intrigued.
3: Okay, so I had no answer on that. Cool, awesome. Well, that's what I get for asking the most obvious question. But when I was watching it, I was like, "How do you even do that shot? It's really we wanted dis- the the
4: vulture so much to be you know it's the over all-seeing eye you know and it represented the the spirit of the place really um you know and it sees everything and so that kind of became that that, the function um Mm -hmm. and um you know so we spent a lot of time with vultures to you know
3: Well, cool. Um, I feel like I've asked uh, what I'd like to ask. Do
1: you th- have any war stories to share about being out there, uh, you know, with something crazy that happened? Um,
4: Richard's had more, and uh, you've met an elephant. Room,
1: so. Yeah, Richard, let's hear your story.
3: Yeah, I want to hear the elephant story. You
4: can't think of the elephant story. The elephant <laughs> story. Well, so this is the thing. With Richard, it happens all the time. So I will recall what happened from someone who was with it, and... Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was raining, and then suddenly this elephant appeared. From, you can't see elephants. You think they're, they're the one thing you yeah, can't the, see. was it dark, dark. Big yeah. and black, okay, and dark. and and he had he had an umbrella. And when the elephant charged, he opened the umbrella in the face
0: of the elephant. You must remember this. I do now. Yeah, yeah. I I, I thought it was, I think it's actually a buffalo, but anyway, yes.
4: It was Oh, the yeah. other was another story. Yeah, there was a buffalo. That's, yeah, that was even worse. It
0: was oh. in the dark and we were just going to supper and I think it was raining, hence I had an umbrella. And um, yeah, this buffalo shot out from behind this bush and charged. And it's like, well, what I've got is an umbrella. So I opened it and the buffalo had never seen that before and it just ran away. <laughs> 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 it made made supper a little bit interesting.
3: I guess, uh, you know, the, the question that kind of hovers over all of this and I never it, it doesn't even really occur to me when I'm watching these these kinds of shows is like how prepared are all of you to like basically do field medicine on one another in the event that an animal attacks somebody like you have how, to what degree are you prepared to uh, to save each other's lives? Or is it so out of the realm of possibilities that you don't even need to worry about it?
0: i mean we've all got basic first aid training and things um Mm. but where we are filming we're actually very lucky because there's there's a very very good sort of first aid doctor's clinic thing um on the property so we would be within the furthest is probably an hour and a half away from Mm. that clinic um we we have flying
4: doctor as well yeah
0: we're at an airfield where, you know, the flying doctor can come in with, with you know, full emergency kit. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I haven't had to do it yet, so hopefully I
4: don't- Yeah, I, it. <laughs> I, I've had all the training, but I just, uh, you know- But, but you do real, go in fully cool. trained
3: for, for these contingencies. Well, I've, I've always heard like, you know, like if a bear is attacking you, lay on the ground. If a wildcat, like in California, like stand up big, like do you have all of these things in your head about like every animal that you're you might encounter?
0: Yeah, I suppose you, you do have sort of certain things that you would do to you know if if a lion charges you, you know what to do, and if an elephant and yeah most of them you do, but uh, you know I will probably say that even if you're trained to shoot something that's coming at you with a rifle, which we don't carry rifles, but I'm just saying you could have all the training, but when that buffalo actually comes at you, is a very different experience and unless you've got an umbrella. You the I was going
1: to
4: say, keep, ah, keep your umbrellas ah, ah, handy, right? <laughs> he didn't even remember it because it was so sort of casual. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> terrible. It kills more, more people than <laughs> you know, that. He just uses his umbrella.
3: Nice. Well, I think that's a great place to leave it. So, uh, so the show is Serengeti, and it's currently in America. It's on Discovery Network. It's a beautiful show, and 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 it's it's amazing work. Where can people find uh, the two of you online if they wanted to kind of see your work or you know maybe even interact with you on social media?
4: Yeah, well, uh, John Downer Productions. Anything with John Downer, if you put that into any, you know. We're John
3: Downer Productions.
4: Yeah, we're on Instagram. We're our YouTube channel is definitely worth. Uh, worth a watch um, that has a lot of people watching that so that would give a taste of what we do small clips of uh, serengeti on there but mainly you know other stuff yeah so if you look you'll find us
0: i've just got a website rmjfilming.com
3: cool well everybody go check that out and, and definitely check out serengeti again it's a it's a beautiful show just brilliantly made and uh, and full of amazing animals and drama so thank you so much guys for coming on the podcast
4: It's been a total pleasure. Thank you.
3: So that was John Downer and Richard Jones. Thank you, guys. It was a fascinating conversation. And uh, honestly, uh, we're, we're so used to interviewing people who make narrative stuff here or more standard documentaries where you're following people around. What a look into a different world it was. And I'm hoping that someone listening to it is is like holy crap that's a career path i can take and is inspired to go down that way because to me it's like that is definitely a very specific calling so that was an exciting interview
2: you know i I was gonna say that's one of those career paths where that uh if you didn't hear someone talk about it like that you might not really understand uh what's involved or how you'd go about it or how how do you get into you know nature documentaries where you you spend months and months and months out in the middle of nowhere it actually sounds kind of kind of peaceful it does especially <laughs> when there's no viruses around you from other people <laughs> uh anyway hey you know what time it is ben it is time to what time is it it's bill pan time paying okay i thought it was i thought it was time to send in the clowns <laughs> Uh, sending in the clowns. That, that that would be wonderful too. Instead, we're going to send in Aperture. Aperture. Okay. <laughs> they make really high quality. Master of Segway. <laughs> I've tried my best here. Uh, professional LED lights uh, at very affordable prices. And they've just announced something new. They call the LS60D and the LS60X. Just rolls right off the tongue. But these are daylight balanced and bi color. Uh, relatively small relatively low power draw lights I mean they're very tiny we might have uh, some either interest or pre-order stuff up on high-ride cameras yet but I don't think I don't even think th- this is really more like a technology example sort of thing here I don't even think there's a price that's been announced for them yet they're very very oh, new okay. but they're compatible with like all their other sort of uh, accessories all the stuff that they put on their their other lights but uh, the fact that there's going to be small and very low power draw also means probably very low price and so really uh, high efficiency focusable lights and uh, definitely go to the aperture.com website to see a kind of a cool snazzy little video they put together with some of the specs and uh, I think they're going to be a hit I think they're going to be something that people really like because uh, small efficient lights that you that use the same amount of uh, power as a traditional 60 watt household bulb but are incredibly bright and you can use for motion picture production that's uh that's that's something
3: that's pretty sweet every week i'm just seeing newer and cooler stuff coming out of aperture it's like i don't i don't know how they are able to innovate so quickly but it's pretty amazing
2: i think they got a lot of smart people working there that's i i'm gonna Give credit to people. They don't have an AI that's you know coming up with this stuff. It's, it's a person. <laughs> maybe maybe a bunch of people. Yeah,
3: they're using Adobe Sensei. It's a it's a plugin you can get that'll just make new products for any company. So
2: you know we we, we plugged in all the details we had for the like the top selling lights <laughs> of all time, and voila, a hundred monkeys later, here here we are. Here, here's our product. <laughs> so that, that didn't happen. No, it was very smart engineers who spent a lot of time through trial and error, coming up with good stuff. I think that's what it is. But if
3: they did have 100 monkeys making their lights, more
2: of them would be (laughs) (laughs) banana-flavored. And they might have an incredible screenplay, as the old saying (laughs) is.
1: now short
2: ends hey ben it's uh it's our famed short end time of the show famous famous so famous uh uh, what's your short end this week
3: okay i want to tell people about something that kind of changed my life a long time ago Mm. um and there's a new iteration of it and that is the book called uh, directing actors by judith weston and judith Mm. weston she closed up her studio in la uh just a few years ago it was called two lights acting studio but she had some pretty heavy hitting clients uh, who went through and took uh, directing classes from her, including people like Taika Waititi and Alfonso Cuaron. And I read her book in like 1996 and I was doing a lot of theater. I was still based in Florida at the time and it, changed the way that I looked at directing uh, specifically in regards to working with actors and, and kind of blew my mind. And when I moved to LA, I saved up my money and I took I took a few of her classes and I always got something amazing out of them. So she's released within the last uh, month, I think, directing actors on Audible as, uh, as an audiobook. And I can't recommend the regular book or the audio book highly enough. Uh, Judy is brilliant. Her angle is sort of... It's a very clear way to figure out how to get what you want out of actors, how to work with them how to collaborate with them. It's sort of about learning how to give them a verb instead of an adjective to play, stuff like that. There are uh, ideas uh, that you'll find in Meisner technique. There are ideas that you'll find in Stella Adler technique. She's just an amazing teacher, probably one of my favorite, uh, certainly my favorite directing teacher I've ever had in my life. And now you can get her in your head, just like you're listening to our show right now. If you're on Audible, uh, definitely check out Directing Actors by Judith Weston. And if you like old fashioned books that you read with your eyeballs, uh, that book is also great. And it's the same
2: book. So get some. That sounds like an incredible resource for anyone who's uh, interested in that sort of thing.
3: And I feel like you might say, hey, wait, I'm listening to this to learn about cinematography. I don't care about actors and feelings. Yes, you do. (laughs) You do, because they uh, what how the actors and the directors work together is going to dictate how the set flows. And I think that probably more than not, cinematographers at least have an interest in directing. And this would give
2: them an idea of how to go about working with actors. And and you know what? And I happen to know that an upcoming interview that we did with another fantastic cinematographer. He actually talks quite a bit about that whole understanding of actors and actually that whole understanding of characters and how to actually tell the story through your cinematography for the character. And I can't imagine a, a better resource than, than like this book yeah. for, that, for that sort of I, thing.
3: I feel like, you know, it's not a, a revolutionary thing to say, but like filmmaking is so cross disciplinary that I think it always helps for people who aren't actors to understand what actors are going through and directors and cinematographers. I mean, that's, you know, the basis of my whole interest in this. I'm not a cinematographer, but I'm fascinated with with what makes them tick and how they go about doing what they do. And I feel like this
2: is that for actors. Yes, indeed. Well, hey, um, totally changing pace. My uh, short end, it, it's almost like another news item here, though, but uh, really Olympus, who's been sort of a player in imaging uh, both for you know uh, photography and video to an extent but also like medical imaging they uh, just announced that they're selling off their imaging division to um, to a computer company essentially a company what uh, yeah so uh so here, here's the thing I've been following this story for the better part of a decade I mean because really there's been a whole lot of stuff in the blogosphere a bunch of stuff that's been posted on on Facebook lately like oh man how could this who saw this coming who's like oh Olympus is neck like, you're selling off this division who knows Olympus. Olympus has fallen. Yes, I can't be it, the first person to say Olympus. No, is not fallen. not at all. As a matter of fact, even the people over at Cinema 5D used Olympus has fallen. And so, like, uh, as as someone who's been paying attention to this for a while, uh, my initial reaction was uh, nobody, nobody should be surprised by this. Why? Why are uh, are all these people saying like, oh, oh my God, this is you know this 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 blow this thing? But uh, no, er- earlier in the decade, there was a huge scandal. The former bosses of Olympus had to pay over half a billion dollars. What? Uh, yes, half a billion dollars. They were forced to pay damages because they hid $1.7 billion in losses through like false accounts and doing a whole bunch of other, uh, I'll just say, accounting irregularities. But essentially they were hiding $1.7 billion in losses. And it's one of the biggest financial scandals in Japan's history. And there's been a lot written about this. And in fact, people who are insiders or track the industry for consumer electronics and technology this has been big news this has been stuff they've been been talking about but uh, and it's not the first time that actually someone was interested in buying this division and as a matter of fact I remember a couple times they got to the altar pretty close but the deal didn't quite work out but Olympus made a press release that a company called Japan Industrial Partners they're famous because they actually bought Sony's computer division of Vio, which was also not a very successful division but they bought that and they kind of reorganized it and was making at their own they're coming in now it looks like to take over this division for uh olympus so who knows what's going to happen but i gotta say actually it seems really shrewd to me that photography and computer technology especially you know digital photography digital videography and a, a computer company coming together because more and more the cameras the people are shooting with Are like little computers with an imaging sensor they're not like this analog box anymore it's all very digital and it's getting smaller and smaller and uh, it would not surprise me at all if someone else takes another stab at uh at at better cameras and better uh, computer technology merging into one
3: i'm not especially embarrassed to admit this but what unique qualities typify olympus because i don't know that i've ever held an olympus uh digital camera in my hand
2: Olympus was actually really known on the photography side for their lenses. They made really high quality, really small lenses. That was that was a big part of their, their imaging. The, the digital camera is actually uh, some of the newer stuff, but from the photographic size aside. God, they've been making lenses since ni- the uh, the mid-1930s. So it's oh, like wow. they, they've been around a long time and lenses wow. were really what they're about. And they were very much known for their Zuiko and uh, the OM series of lenses. They also made these really, really tiny little cameras called pens that were very popular, like little pocket cameras before. Pocket cameras were uh, particularly uh, commonplace. Uh, they, they've also made a bunch of other little things, including micro cassette recorders and, and you name it. They were all kind of part of this uh, division. And the smartphones really kind of destroyed destroyed a lot of their stuff they were very consumer oriented but they did make some higher end products as well but the lenses really for a lot of uh, you'll notice this certainly as you talk to more photographers and 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 people on the show uh, i don't le- talk to photographers <laughs> i only talk to cinematographers well oh, you know yeah, they're, they're, they, they tend to be the same person but no I no, no just as, cinematographers <laughs> how many cinematographers have you talked to have these incredible instagrams because they are also none photographers? zero zero okay. i don't know what you're talking about My my, my point is, my point is this, that um, lenses form the image. Lenses are very important. The size of lenses, the performance of lenses. And uh, it's at least a a third, if not, if not more of the, the image quality process comes from that lens. Maybe you can give it more credit that there's some people who will say 50%. I'm going to say it's more like a third of of how important it is in in the whole hierarchy of things. But regardless, they're they're really great and they made some pretty decent cameras as well. And uh, now we'll see what's going to come of them. I don't really know what the brands will, what the brands will hold or if they will actually keep the brands or chances are they will not. And it will, uh, it's a new company that's sort of being formed and there's a press release. We'll put a link to it that you guys can read all about it.
3: Interesting. Well, I'm, I'm interested to see how this turns out. I'd love to see yet another player in this space. Yeah, it'll
2: it'll be interesting to see what happens. I mean, but, but certainly uh, Olympus has got some uh, some following and they they've been around for a long time. So we'll see what happens next. Assuming that this happens, they basically made a press release just saying this is our intent. It could still all fall apart. It's, it's always possible. So, Ilya, who do we have to thank this week? Let's thank God. Who should we thank? Let's start off with K. Atrachi. Why not?
3: case who is most certainly not listening to this episode didn't listen
2: to this episode he skipped this one just completely glossed right over it. Let's actually know well, he,
3: might, he might be into the nature documentary stuff because of all the tech that they use he'd, he'd hmm. be into some of that
2: stuff well, well maybe well, well, he can he, he might be he...
3: whipping up a new camera stabilizer in his in his secret laboratory as we speak
2: <laughs> yes or some sort of cool visual effects process to make you know uh, earthworms yeah. and lions look like they're they're physically <laughs> the same size.
3: To swap them, to use the the uh, to use the motion information from a lion to animate a, a very realistic, like a photorealistic earthworm in Blender.
2: Maybe he can do like a Dune fan film then, and he can have these earthworms, which uh, you know replace the Dune worms, and yeah, it's it'll a, be fun.
3: It's a great idea. I think I think K's is all over it. He's already done it and right. color corrected it, and it's out, else? and he and he scored it.
2: All right. Who else should we thank? Who who else? Oh, uh, we need to
3: thank Alana Cody, who uh, who has been burning the midnight oil to get us all of these amazing interviews.
2: All right. Well, th- well, thank you, Alana, and let's also thank Ben Katz, who's making us ben not Katz, sound like m- he's moving back to L.A. That's right. He's he's going to be local. So all of you people out there who uh, were looking for for an editor who's you know moving from the Pacific Northwest to to L.A. Uh, ben Katz. Yeah, yeah. All this time you
3: thought, wow, that's pretty slickly edited. I bet they do it in L.A. It was a lie. It was all done in Seattle by Ben
2: Katz. That's right and hey uh, next time we do this Ben we're going to have some cool emails to read and we're going to have another great uh, close focused topic and uh, let's ask people who are still listening to this end end of the show to please like subscribe and you know, review, send, send us an email, send, you know, do, do something. Do if you, have if you some send
3: s- us an email that's even passively kind of nice, we're probably going to read it in the podcast. So <laughs> if you like hearing your name said in a podcast, just write us an email.
2: I've had an embarrassment of people reach out actually through LinkedIn lately saying nice things about the show. So uh, I think that prompted Alana to create a LinkedIn page for us. So I think we're going to have a, a podcast oh, LinkedIn page.
3: A lot of people have been li- who listen to the show have been friending me on Facebook suddenly, mm. like in the last two weeks.
2: Interesting. All right, cool.
3: All right, well, Ben, until next week. Until next week, we'll see you then.
1: This has been the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.